to be back this morning and to have such a good group with us again. I hope all of you are planning to hold in at least until four o'clock this afternoon because I want to develop these issues right throughout this morning and the early afternoon. And I hope you will pray that what I present in this very sensitive and important topic will be what God would want and also in the way in which he would want it presented. I want you to come with me to Zephaniah. You notice that um, I frequently use these Old Testament prophets. They have so much material for us today. Zephaniah chapter 3. And I'm reading verse 18 and 19. Zephaniah 3. Zephaniah is right there towards the end of the Old Testament. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. <laughs> Just keep them there. It's the fourth last book of the Old Testament. And they're all small, so it's not hard to find them. Not Zechariah. Go back to Haggai and then go back to Zephaniah. You've got Zechariah there. That's not the one. Keep going back a wee bit more. That's it. You've got it. You've got the right page, sister. Zephaniah 3. Yes, there you've got it. Zephaniah. I want everyone to have these texts. I don't know, these little minor prophets trouble us, don't they, sometimes? But don't forget to, to memorize the order of the Bible and then it's not difficult. Zephaniah 3, verse 18. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly, who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict thee, and I will save her that halteth, and gather her that was driven out, and I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. Amen. This is a wonderful prophecy. And each meeting I'm going to read another similar prophecy about those who have been driven out of God's church. Here it says they've been put to shame. It says there's been a reproach. Um, they've been driven out. But God has made a promise here, brethren and sisters, that he will bring them back. Now, I don't have to tell you that many faithful Adventists have been driven out of this church. That's happened around the world. I'm not talking about those who have been disfellowshipped that should be disfellowshipped. Today, in many ways, we err on the wrong side. We, uh, there are people that should be disfellowshipped that are not. That are not faithful Adventists. They're not true to the tr word. They're not true to the truth of God. But God says they're going to be brought back. He's going to bring them back. He's only going to have one fold at the end of time. I think of the way in which the European reformers were driven out of this church. Most of you probably know very little about that. But in the First World War and the years immediately following the First World War, I believe the faithful in the Reform and the faithful in the Adventist Church are going to be in one fold at the end. I've got no question about that. All God's faithful people are going to be in one fold. And while I was in Germany, I spoke to one of the Union Presidents of the Reform. And we both agreed that that was going to happen and happen pretty soon. They listened, uh, some of those reformers, to the meetings over there in Hengelo, and they were thrilled. 
with what they heard. And they even were honest enough to say that their church has to be stronger on this righteousness by faith than it is. But God's faithful people are coming and God's going to bring them back. Now, it doesn't mean everyone's going to be driven out. But if anyone is driven out, don't lose confidence, don't lose courage, don't lose faith. God's made a promise, a sure, unmistakable promise that he will bring them back. He will gather her that was driven out. So there may be a short time, maybe, when a man or woman or people might be driven out. But God has made an unerring promise that he will bring them back. He's the one that's going to do the gathering into one fold. Now the first thing that I want to do this morning in our first talk, and I want to break the talks up a little so they're not overly long. I'll do that on the promise that you will come back promptly (laughs) after we've had the little break. We'll take about a quarter of an hour break. That's long enough, I think, if we all work together on it. And I want to start just with the history of Gaisley. You have a little synopsis history of Gaisley in the first issue of what is it, Good News? And I want to perhaps expand a little on that and put it into a broader context. When Heartland Institute just pass them around and let anyone take one that doesn't have it. When Heartland Institute began in 1983, July of 1983, we quickly realised that we needed to get together and get this message around. Ron Spear at that time had left the Review and Herald, but he was not at hope. In fact, he talked about coming to Heartland and carrying on his ministry from there. And I said, Ron, you need to have a ministry of your own. (laughs) I I knew that I didn't expect him to go all the way over the West Coast, but that's where the Lord led. And it's been the most wonderful thing. Instead of us being grouped together, we'd scatter. And it hasn't diminished in any way our cooperation or our working together. But as we talked together, he, he, he and I decided that we should get out and give some of these conferences around to help our people know the true Advent message. And it was his suggestion that we call them the Firm Foundation Conferences. We said, well, we've got to find a church to have our first one in. And we both agreed that Jim Walter, the pastor of the Ontario Church in the Southeastern California Conference, would be an ideal place to start because Elder Walter is such a faithful Seventh-day Adventist. And, of course, he readily agreed. And December of 1983, we had our first, what was then called, Firm Foundation Conference. We waited quite a while then, till the summer of 1984, before we had our second conference, And that was in Arden, um, North Carolina. Big church right there near where the big Adventist centre of Fletcher is. I suppose we had up to 700 people at those meetings, at the Sabbath meetings. And 300 during the week. And the end of that year I was on my way to... Australia for some furlough and Russell at that time you remember was president of Henton Medical Centre end of 84 and he said when you we were planning to come back through England and he said when you're coming through (coughs) why don't you and I hold a Bible conference in England together I said, that would be great. He said, I think we can work it out in one of the churches. Let's try for the new gallery. I wonder if everybody knows what Henson was. Oh, 
Yes, I'm just taking it for granted. How many of you do not know Enton Medical Centre? Do not. Oh, man. Enton Medical Centre was down in Surrey, near the little village of uh, Whitley. It was a large, beautiful um, institution (coughs) that had a health background, but they were having some financial difficulties, and the opportunity came to buy it. It wasn't too far from Guildford, really, was it? Um, And what's another place closer than Guildford? Godling. Godalming. Godalming, yeah, Godalming. Yeah, I'll get it straight. Godalming. So... But there in that beautiful area of Surrey, just a lovely spot. And, uh, and some um, American Adventists had a vision and they decided to buy it or to help buy it and work with the English. And eventually my brother was invited to be the medical director of it. And some wonderful staff were associated with that institution. Um, Brother and Sister Michael Thompson, Dr. Gillian Gibson, Dr. Gobble from America was there, the, um, a, a number from the continent worked there, Adventists. Of course, there were some non-Adventist staff too, but the whole hope was that it would eventually become all Adventist. And um, that's right. I don't want to leave out the important people. Well, there are lots of people, and you know, many of their names escape me because I wasn't there long enough to to get to know everyone well. Brother and sister, what were their names? From they were South African, Scottish, or whatever that was in the help with the cafeteria. They're now retired in Australia. Yeah, the Rivens. There are lots of, of fine Adventists that there. But eventually, Anton Medical Centre broke down with controversy. Satan's a master, isn't he? And my brother became part of the centre of that controversy because he was going around preaching this message. Now, some of the... British loved it, but there were some that didn't. And some of the leaders, look, just talk about health, don't worry about the message. As my brother pointed out, he was an ordained minister of the Adventist Church, and you cannot but speak the message that God has given to you. In the end, very sadly, he accepted a call back to the Far Eastern Division. And sadly, in my view, many of the American backers, they backed what the leadership of the church here in Britain was saying. Oh, they didn't want to cause problems. But I want to tell you, to preach the truth doesn't cause problems. It just prepares people for the kingdom. Amen. And that's what our whole burden here is. Um, so that's a little background and a diversion on Anton. Eventually it was sold, and it was interesting to notice in the messenger that um, the article talking about the sale of it and so on pointed out that for the last couple of years there had been great cooperation with the British Union. They were the two years after my brother had left. Um, my brother was only too anxious to work with the Union or any of our leaders but not in compromise. That's the issue. (coughs) But coming back to this situation, I was passing through here the beginning of February 1985, and so we looked at the first weekend of February 1985, and my brother spoke with Pastor Sylvan Reed, who was then the president of the South England Conference, and with... Pastor Harold Corkins, who was then the president of the British Union. Pastor Corkins was very supportive. Pastor Reed was guardedly supportive, if I can put it that way. Now, I'd known Pastor Reed very well down in Jamaica. 
Um, he had been the West Jamaica Conference President when I was President of the College. We were on the College Committee together, we were on the Union Board together and so on. So we knew each other personally and had had a very good relationship while I'd been in Jamaica. Mutual respect, one for the other. And um, yet I could sense, he called me up into America and I could sense a little fear in his um, reaction. But in the end, they agreed that we would hold these meetings in the new gallery in London. About two weeks or so before the meetings, Brother Michael Thompson sent out a letter to the pastors in the greater London area, just encouraging them to encourage their members to come and attend these meetings. That would be a natural thing. Well, it was if all hell had been unleashed. Just that simple letter, encouraging people, uh, the pastors, to, in, to encourage their members to be present at that meeting. The issue became so hot that Elder Reed decided to withdraw the invitation and, the, um, and to cancel the meetings in the new gallery. Well, the folk at Enton Medical Centre decided they weren't going to cancel the meetings. They'd look for a new location. And there in that little village hall there in Whitley, they decided to have the meetings and to somehow try to get the word around of the change of location. That's not an easy thing to do at the last moment. But they reasonably <coughs> well succeeded for probably over the period of the weekend, close to 150 people came. Some of the folk that were there are here today. Can I see the hands of those that were at those meetings there in, in Whitley? And God really blessed in those meetings. But the, some of the brethren felt it was rebellion to go ahead with the meetings in a new location. As my brother pointed out, self-supporting institutions often hold meetings. This was nothing unusual. And the problem was not with the um, with Enton Medical Centre. They'd done everything to cooperate with the leadership and with the, the, the um, brethren. You know, uh, they hadn't tried to do anything surreptitiously. It had been an open. And, and I know that if it had been held in the new gallery, even more people would have been there. But... For those that were there, it was a blessing. I remember a number of non-Adventists that attended that meeting, by the way. Did any of you remember that? Yeah. One couple came to me after the meeting, and the husband said, my wife and I have been here for all but the Friday night meeting, and we have been well impressed with what we've heard. Now, those meetings, as you know, were straight Adventism. There was no um, special effort to impress non-Adventists in those meetings. And he said, I wonder if there's any way we can study what Seventh-day Adventists believe more fully. Now, you don't get many of those kind of requests anywhere in the world, let alone in Britain. But uh, because this message is so clear, it is so authentic, people, when they hear it, if they're honest in heart, they cannot but help but be impressed by it. The Holy Spirit will impress them if they don't. Well, in a way, that started some of the tension between my brother and some of the staff at Enton and leadership in the British Union. But those that have been there, I think almost all went away saying, we have been blessed. We've heard the message that really rings authentically in our minds. It's nothing. Some came wondering what they were going to hear and very wary of what was going to take place, but left convinced that this was God's message and truth. Um, we, not long after that, my brother had invitations to preach in Coventry and in Cambridge, and of course he preached in other churches around Britain, but in those churches, and while he was up at Coventry, he spoke with some of the 
folk at Coventry that had been at the meetings. I think Brother Anderson and Sister Anderson were among those that he spoke to, and they decided that it would be wonderful to, before that year, 1985, was out, to have Heartland um, back again and to run one of these Bible conferences in the Coventry Church. They went to the, the board and eventually we received a letter from Dr. Bull who was then the church clerk. I don't know whether he still is. Yeah. Dr. Bull. And um, Dr. Bull wrote us a letter saying that the board had unanimously voted to invite us to hold a, a, a firm foundation, I think we still call it then, conference in the um, Coventry Church. We, I talked it over with our committee and there was unanimity. It would be delighted to do it. We could do it in November of 1985. We wrote back to that effect. But what we didn't know was that the pastor, in spite of that unanimous vote, was very reluctant to have us come, very wary of the situation. Um, but that became apparent. And so we decided to call the pastor and talk with him. And he said to us, well, I don't know any, I've never heard you speak. I don't know what you te teach and I've got to be careful and so on. So we offered to send him some tapes of previous Heartland conferences so that he could hear for himself some of the messages that had been presented. The board however, wanted to remain strong. But there now became great pressure from the North British Conference president, who was not at all anxious to have these meetings in his territory. Eventually, the board was called together again and with the conference president present. And now that relatively small board of about nine people, I think it would have been at the time, um, had considerable persuasion exercised for them to rescind the invitation. I wasn't there, but um, that's my understanding. But nevertheless, still by a vote of five to four, they voted that they wanted Hartland to come. Now, the four that backed away were not people that were not uh, were convinced that it would be bad to have us but they you know when the president of the conference is putting certain pressures on it's hard to remain strong and i wish our lay people would in christian love remain strong irrespective of who it is that, that's putting persuasion or pressure on i think we have to do that brethren and sisters, if we have deep convictions. Now, if the president could show that we were preaching heresy or whatever, then that would be a different matter. But if it's just a matter of saying, well, we don't, we don't want these people there, that's not a good enough reason. Well, not long at this point, we told the folk in Coventry that we were willing to hold off um, till the thing could be sorted out you know, Heartland is not one of these um, redneck kind of organisations that wants to move irrespective. We want to work with the brethren and with the leadership wherever we can. And so by that time we realised that there was no hope of us ever getting over there again till the summer of 1986. But we thought that was plenty of time. That was a seven-month delay to get this thing all worked out, lined out and smoothed out. And that's what we wanted to see. Well, of course, at the end of uh, December, a new board was chosen um, for the Coventry Church. And two key people that had been on the board and very supportive of Heartland coming were no longer members of the Coventry Church board. Now, that could have changed the balance of strength. And once again, another board meeting was called. And once again, the conference president came down. Maybe, I don't know, with the thought that maybe now, with these two strong supporters of Heartland coming, 
Off the board, it might be easy to influence, but somehow this time the board didn't go along with it and virtually without dissent they still confirmed that they wanted Hartland to come. Um, it was about this point that Elder Corkins called us up as the union president and um, he was deeply distressed by it and he told us very clearly that he thought that our messages could be a great blessing here in Britain. No question he was supportive of us coming. But he said to us, look, <coughs> and he did it in such a delicate way, I mean, he didn't in any ways undermine anyone or criticise, but he said, you know, there's some concerns and that. Would you be willing <coughs> to direct your messages not only to Adventists but as a kind of a an outreach to non-Adventists as well? And we said, we'd be absolutely thrilled to do that. What preacher doesn't want to preach to non-Adventists and, and, and share the message with them. So um, we wrote a, a letter to the effect and uh, we sent a copy to the North British President and to the Pope Pastor, as I recall, if I can remember my facts clearly. Anyway, they were communicated with, but I believe it was by letter. But we weren't ready for the letter that we received back from the North British Conference President. I have to be honest with you, brethren, I've never seen such an undercutting of a union president in all my life. Just because the union president says it doesn't mean that we want you here. That was the basis of the letter. He has no authority. It's interesting how you have authority when you need it and when you don't want it, you've got no authority, you know. But Elder Corkins, being the Christian man that he is, and any of you that remember Elder Corkins here will know that whatever else, that he was a man of God. A very deeply sincere, dedicated man. I remember talking to him later after he had retired and gone back to California, and he came to one of our Bible conferences in Loma Linda and came to many of the meetings, and he came and he said, you know... I've been just so blessed by these meetings. And he said, I just can't understand why there was so much opposition in Britain to you going there. Um, but nevertheless, the board had voted and against every situation, um, it was all set for June of 1986 for us to go to the Coventry Church. And we were looking forward to that. When one day we received a phone call from the pastor of the Cambridge church, quite out of the blue. And he said, I understand you're holding a series of meetings over in the Coventry church. Would you be willing to hold a series of meetings either a week before or a week after in the Cambridge church? Well, we were excited about that call. As you can imagine, and of course we were only too happy to extend to incorporate a meeting in the Cambridge Church. We um, were planning it well, and um, it was to be the week after we had finished at the Coventry Church. And the plans were working out, seemed to be fairly good. We had all our tickets booked. But just before we were to leave, in fact, we were going to leave directly from Sacramento, not go back to Heartland. We had a Bible conference in Sacramento. That was a big conference, one of the biggest we've ever held. A lot of Adventists in that area, more than California. And um, while we were there, Helmer called up the pastor here at Cambridge just to make sure everything was finalised and he came back devastated. The pastor had said, we've cancelled out the meeting. It's causing too much controversy or something like that. What we understand is that some of the other pastors became angry with the pastor and put so much pressure on him that he decided the best thing he could do was cancel the meetings out. Here we were over 
in Sacramento. Our tickets were booked. We were to leave immediately after that to go to came uh, to um, Coventry. We were about two weeks away from the Cambridge meeting, about a week, less than a week away from the starting of the Coventry meetings. And Hal came back quite shaken and, and distressed. And I don't know why, but I turned to him and I said, don't worry about it, Hal. God has a better plan. Now, I don't know why I said that to him, but I believe the Lord, you know, my natural reaction would have been to be like Hal. What's wrong with this pastor? How could he do this at the last minute? But somehow, they were not the words. Perhaps when you see someone else upset, you tend to try to help the situation. And I said to him, God has a better plan. I had no idea what it would be. I couldn't understand what even my words meant. About two hours later, Hal was called to the phone again, and there was Richard Humphreys on the line. Now, I've got to be honest with you, I couldn't remember the name Richard Humphreys. He'd been down at the meetings in, in Whitley, but I didn't remember the name. And he spoke to Hal. He said, look, we've got this rectory there and we could have a meeting in the rectory and, and we're not that far from Cambridge and if you'd be interested, we'd, be, we'd open our homes. That was an interesting situation. That, to us, came out of the clear blue sky. As far as we were concerned, Cambridge and its environments were dead as far as having a meeting. And um, some of you have read what had happened in the newsletter. It makes it very clear. Um, I think at one time you'd been a member of Cambridge Church, hadn't you? Just, uh, we just moved away to, to Bury a year previous. To Bury St Edmunds, yes, church. And so um, he knew Cambridge well and was planning to be present. And then he learned that it had been cancelled. And so he decided to go and talk to the pastor about it. And as providence, as God's leading would have it, he happened to be sitting right there in the pastor's home when Hal called. I don't think these are coincidences, do you? I believe they're providences. And when Richard heard that, his mind started to think, or the Lord started to stimulate his mind about this place. And so... um, when Hal came back to talk to me again, he told me about this and about Richard Humphreys, and I told him I couldn't remember who Richard Humphreys was. But um, I said, well, maybe this is God's better answer. It didn't seem that we could see everything. Well, I said, we've got nothing to do that weekend. Our tickets don't allow us out of here because there were certain restrictions on the tickets for the price we'd got. I said... Let's, let's say yes. What else? <coughs> well, we went to, Ca- to Coventry and I really appreciated the opportunity of getting to know some of the brethren and sisters there at Coventry. We had excellent meetings. It is true that on the opening night the pastor stood up and read an extensive <coughs> letter in which at first he gave us some Irish of um, 10,000 welcomes but after that it didn't sound quite so welcomish but that's and um, I was not going to allow that to affect the message and then it was printed in the bulletin the next day and the senior elder Brother Cooper he saw it in the bulletin he withdrew it all from the bulletin and that didn't make the pastor happy there are lots of little things but before the end of it I felt the pastor had come around a long way maybe not all the way but at least he wrote me a very nice five page letter afterwards and saying he hoped that we could come back this time with the support of the conference well we would have hoped that too but it's never happened Um, 
And then we came across here, and for the first time we saw the village of Gaisley and the old rectory of Gaisley. Well, there's no question about it, there are plenty of rooms in this place. And about 60 people, I would say, turned up. We held the meetings in this room here, next door. And the door was open for a few overflow. It was crowded, as you can imagine. Almost everyone that was there Friday night and um, through most of the Sabbath hours were white Adventists. Most of them middle-aged or older. <laughs> or nearly middle-aged. <laughs> Depends where you start. <laughs> What's that? Oh, yes, there were many warnings given for people not to attend. But uh, as we came towards the latter part of the Sabbath hours and in the, in the evening a van load of West Indian, young West Indians came mainly from I think the Tottenham <coughs> church actually it was one young lady who had been on the Friday evening yes and, and she and that's right she'd been there on the Friday evening she'd gone back and told these people to come and um and I've got to be honest, as I talked to some of those um, young West Indians, whether they were born in West Indies, I don't remember now, but anyway, they were so excited at the end, they didn't know there were any whites that had any fire in them at all here in Britain. <laughs> that was true. That was honestly how they felt. And I can't blame them because probably there were a lot of good evidence to support their convictions or, on that. And though they were young, and though they were black, and though the others were white and older, immediately you could sense the drawing together the Holy Spirit. And that's the beauty of it. There's no barriers in age or race with the gospel. It unites us as one. And um, how many of you are here at that first Gaisley meeting? See, there's some of the most of the people that were down at um, that here at Gaisley uh, were down at Whitley were here, plus a few others. And people started <coughs> to say the, the only thought was to have that one meeting. There was no thought that this would develop anything else, but people said, oh, this has been such a blessing. Can't we have something like this again? I believe, brethren and sisters, that God moved in this. It didn't start by man. It wasn't a brilliant scheme of Richard or of Hartland or any combination of people. It happened... But God used those circumstances. And I cannot be convinced that this is of Satan. I am thoroughly convinced it's of God. And it can only be of one of two sources. Well, in a way, the rest is history. Others, <coughs> Hope International, Institute of Ministries, Light Bearers, and you can go through a whole range of different speakers that have been here, beside the, the messages given by some of the English speakers. Now, I sense that God in his full wisdom had a great destiny for Gaisley. I still sense that. And before the afternoon's out, we're going to talk about some issues of that destiny. By the way, the pastor of Cambridge did attend some of the meetings here. And we did have a chance to talk with him, but there was that reticence that had been developed. Now, this is the fourth time that I have spoken at Gaisley. 
It's not a lot of times. But every time I just feel thrilled to be here. I've seen Americans associated with the Air Force here for the first time learn what the real Adventist faith is all about and go back to America on fire, the America they'd left, Laodicean and half-hearted. In fact, earlier this year, Pace in Arizona, one of those Americans was there at the meeting that... um, I held there in patience and still strong for God's truth. And he learned it right here in Gaisley. You try and convince him that Gaisley isn't a place ordained of God. I forget his name, but I I remember his face. Don't ask me names, uh, Paul. I can often find it hard to remember my close friends' names, let alone... And by the way, he's not the only ones. There have been a number of Americans from the air base and so on that have found the gospel here at Gaisley. And there have been people from the continent. I still remember the um, last time I was here when Rhea Haverman, she'd been in contacted by Roy. Where is Roy? Yes. Coming across the boat from Holland. You remember Rhea Havermans. And what a privilege it was to see her take a stand that Saturday night. About the last person to stand in the appeal that I made on Sabbath keeping. I remember she was a Roman Catholic. And we'd been talking about the persecution of Sabbath keepers and so on. I'll never forget her words to me afterwards. She said, you probably noticed that I was late to respond because I just didn't think I had the strength. But then you had said that um, Christ provides the strength and I knew he had enough strength so I stood. And when I make a decision like this, I really mean it. And then she wrote a note to Roy Daniel purposed in his heart, and so have I. Do you remember the note? Yes. Yes. You've still got it. Yes. That's one of those memorable occasions. Gaisley has been responsible for converting people, not just for helping those who are already Adventists and strengthening them, but actually conversion. And you know, in March of last year, when I went to New Zealand, I got the shock of my life to find Rhea down in New Zealand. I had not the slightest idea she was down there. And I asked her if she was remaining 3.30, 4 o'clock every morning. There she was up studying the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. I asked her if she'd been baptised and she said no. Um, I don't know whether I'm worthy to be baptised. Well, no, I explained to her... No one is worthy to be baptized. But here was a woman growing in the Lord. And then, well, I said, but she said, I want to be baptized by a faithful pastor. She now knew the difference. And I was struggling, to be honest, to make a recommendation. But then I recommended a man who had been a pastor, a South African. He'd been a pastor in New Zealand and now retired in Australia. And I knew he was coming over. But that didn't work out. And I was back in New Zealand in May again, thinking that she probably would have been baptised then. But no, she wasn't. I said, Rhea, I'm not going to leave New Zealand till I see you baptised. This Bible's too clear. I'd gone through with her the Sabbath. I knew how strong she was on that. I'd gone through the power of the gospel and righteousness by faith. I'd gone through the state of the dead. I'd gone through the sanctuary and the investigative, you know, all our wonderful messages and she knew them and believed them by this time. She was strong. So what to do? I said, what church you've been attending? Well, most of the time she named a church. Well, I said, that's good. He's a Dutch pastor. The pastor of that church had migrated to New Zealand about 40 years before 
as a young fellow and um, she being Dutch, at least that was a connection. So I said, let me give him a call on the phone. So I called him and told her him of Ria's deep commitment. And I said, um, by that time she had made it clear she wanted me to baptise. And that was a little awkward. Here I was transiting through New Zealand. I know the way they feel about it. But I said to the pastor, I would not baptise her unless I was assured that your church would accept her into membership. Well, he had been a student at Avondale when I taught there and he had at least from that time some good respect for me. I didn't remember him, but um, he'd gone there as a little older student as a coal porter to train to be a minister. And um, he said, that is no problem. Well, I said, she wants to be baptised in, um, in the stream at Ravensthorpe, beautiful creek, clear uh, mountain stream. I tell you, in May in New Zealand, that's pretty cold, I can assure you. <laughs> and... Of course, May in England wouldn't be too warm either, I wouldn't think, but this is the other side of the coin. And, but, um, and he was so cooperative. He said, yes, there'll be no problem. So I went with her to the church that Sabbath. And uh, they asked me to take the Sabbath school lesson, which I did. And then I told them about the baptism and asked that the leaders and the members of the church come to Ravensthorpe to be there to witness a baptism. And a goodly number of them came, including the, the elders and the pastor of the church. And what a blessing it was to not only have the opportunity of preaching and uh, seeing a commitment made, but also, you know, 13,000 miles from here, performing the baptism. Lee has made significant impacts, not just on Adventists, on non adverse You know, there's some that say that all we're interested in is um, at the Adventist church. That's so far from the truth. In the last two years, more than 400 people have been baptised as a result of the ministry of Heartland. That's not, a, that's not Pentecost yet, I'll admit that. But I know those 400 people must be rejoicing in the knowledge that they have been baptised and uh, in God's church. I don't know what God has in the future, but I know he has a mighty work in the future greater than we've ever seen before at Gaisley. And I know he's got a great work for each one of us here. And I want us to realize that Gaisley is not a breakaway from the church. It's not another church. It is a fellowship where faithful Seventh-day Adventists come four or five or six maybe times a year for spiritual revival and fellowship with those who are truly of like precious faith. You know, we have to be honest that in the Adventist church today, we are not united on the truth. We've got to be honest about that. I don't care which side of the fence we are on these issues. We've got to be honest and say we are not a church now united on the truth. And it's only natural that those who are of like precious faith will want to gather together from time to time. Some are very small minorities in the churches where they worship. Some are fed constantly a diet from the pulpit or in the Sabbath school class, or both, which is not consistent with the great messages of the Bible or the truths of his Advent faith. But these are faithful Seventh-day Adventists. These aren't separatists. These are people that believe in the Seventh-day Adventist church. And even if they're disfellowship, they still will be loyal to the church, but not to the error in the church not to the fallacies in the church, not to the worldliness in the church. Loyalty of that kind is not loyalty to God. I have a little dictum. I 
put it this way. He that puts the church ahead of the word destroys the church. Do you get the impact of that? There are many that are trying to defend the church today and they put the church above the word. How many of you remember the... um, statement that I wrote last year called My Church, Oh My Church. I said it over here, didn't I? To England? Well, let me read it to you. This sums up my burden for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. My church, God's church. It's called My Church, Oh My Church. If any of you were interested in it, maybe it could be duplicated. (coughs) What has happened to my church? The church I have loved and served from my youth. You are the church that molded my values, my attitudes, my beliefs, my lifestyle, my vision and above all my ministry. Like a passionate lover, you pursued me, you wooed me and eventually you won me. At 16, I so loved you that through the ministry of Jesus, I embraced you through baptism. At 18, I loved you so much that I chose to give my life in service to you and the God that you represent. I love the clear testimony that your ministering servants gave. I thrilled to the prophetic unfolding of your evangelists. I loved your stirring calls to holy living. Though I have not always lived up to God's standards, yet I have never for a moment rejected their validity nor their divine origin. I love the certainty of the messages you preached, the certainty of the soon return of Jesus, the certainty of the high priestly ministry of my crucified Saviour, the certainty of the one who is willing to stand up for me in the judgment, the certainty of the resurrection of the saints, the certainty of the double portion of God's blessing that has been promised to God's faithful Sabbath keepers, and the certainty of the unwavering, unchallengeable standards of God's law. You are the church that won the lifelong allegiance of my paternal great-grandfather and my maternal grandmother. You are the church that gave me my parents, who loved and served you above everything in this universe beside God himself. You are the church that provided me with Christian education. You are the church that gave me a love for the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. You are the church that called me to distant places to preach and teach the everlasting gospel. You are the church to whom I have eagerly directed thousands who have responded to my ministry. You are the church I have staunchly defended against consistent attacks from unbelievers. You are the church that, though unworthy, I was willing to represent as one of your ministers. You are the church that called me to assume major leadership positions in your educational system. You are the church I still love with an intensity unweakened by the passing years. But alas, O my church, what has happened to you? I am bewildered. I still love you. I will always love you. Perhaps I love you more now that you are estranged than I did in your most loyal devotion. But what are these strange voices that I hear? I hear false doctrines and teachings from your pulpits. What is this strange music that I hear? I hear the beat of drums and the deafening sounds of electric steel guitars and synthesizers. What are these glittering adornments that I see on your members? From where comes the sound of sports and revelry, the laughter and conduct of the frivolous and the worldly? Who are these shepherds who claim to be your representatives yet speak with deceptive tongues? Who are these men who offer strange fire upon your altars? Who are these disloyal servants who have gone a-warring after the fallen churches of Babylon to join with their errors and sins? Who are these pastors who preach tame messages week after week to their needy, thirsty congregations? Who are these ministers who garb their impotent messages in the deceptive cloak of charisma? I love you, my church. I want you back. 
not to where you were when I was a lad, but to where God has destined you should be now. I love you too much to be silent. I must cry aloud. I must uplift the Christ of truth and righteousness through whom alone I can have victory over every satanic temptation. I must call your members back to the old paths wherein is a good way. I must point out error and sin in my beloved church. I must warn the unwary. I must awaken the sleepers. I must expose the false teachers. I must direct to the pathway of righteousness. I pray that you will understand, my church, that what I do is born of deep devotion and not alienation. I trust that you might understand that it is a loyal love that motivates my ministry. I plead that you will accept my sacrificial services unto God and his kingdom. I entreat that you will understand that it is a burden for lost souls in the house of Israel that constrains me. My church, oh my church. That's how I feel, brethren and sisters, and maybe some of you feel somewhat similar to that. And it's a heartbreaking experience to see those who are truly faithful to God come under such persecution and pressure from men and women who should be upholding them and strengthening their hands in their ministry for him. Well, I'm going, that's where we're going to stop the first part of our, our dialogue. I want to um, share a few things with you, as I will, along the way. If you have not read the history of the deceptions within the Adventist church, those two volumes, there's not one volume, there are two volumes, it's absolutely essential reading for anyone that wants to know how we got into the mess that we're in today. Adventism challenged. I can assure you it's the only authentic history of how this especially started in Australia. Now there's one set here. I noticed in there the other two are both um, the gathering storm. But I do have one copy in my box I know of the storm bursts. So at least we can make up two sets for those that want these. Uh, someone will have to find it out of my box, but it's in the boxes over in the other room. But don't leave these two sets here. Let uh, at least some of you get hold of them and, and um, take them and read them. Now, last night I mentioned the importance of this book, Keepers of the Faith, with this. We sold out them till we found another couple of copies. As I said to those that were there last night, we have no copies in America. They're, we've sold out of it completely. We do intend in the future to republish it, but how long that's going to take, I do not know. But, yes, but these two copies. They shouldn't be left here either, by the way. Um, you've read it, Mick. Yes, Mick, excellent. It's a, a brilliant book. Well, I don't know about brilliant, but it's certainly... Well, we've, actually, we've actually used some of the information there in our youth program, of course. Yes, it would be helpful. And the other book that I believe that goes with it is this book, Deceptions of the New Theology. We've been talking about deceptions this weekend. Let no man... Uh, take heed that no man deceive you. This book... I, let me just explain a little about this book. And what I'm going to say is not said in a critical way. It's said in an a, a a interesting way. In 1988, when there was a meeting between the self-supporting leaders or some self-supporting leaders in the General Conference, at that meeting, Elder Wilson made a statement that startled me. He said, the new theology, whatever that is, and I said, if our general conference president doesn't know what the new theology is, there must be myriads of people that don't know. And that's why we started to write this book. Um, this book, I've got to be, be frank with you, not everyone likes this book. I've had some wonderful responses from some ministers. But one minister in California, he just lo loaded me. And he said, 
Colin, what you are doing is inciting the laity to rebel against the ministry. And I looked at him and I said, absolutely not. Only against the apostate ministry. I hope we do react against the apostate ministry. If we don't, we're in trouble. I unfortunately knew that this man was one of those, and that's why he's reacting. And because what he was reacting to, we tell exactly how you tell a new theology minister. We give the characteristics. And this minister, of course, obviously fitted quite a number of those characteristics. But our lady need to know. Should we keep them in ignorance and let them be ignorant of the deceptive wiles of Satan? Russell and I have dedicated ourselves to try to warn our people so that they will be able to see those deceptions. Well, there are a few books. What time is it now? Um, well, at quarter to 11 sharp, we will start the next session. No, no, no. It wasn't an Australian, it was an American. And um, I can't even remember his name, even if you ask me. Um, but he was from Central California. So take a 12 or 13 minute break. And if you want to buy some books, I'm sure that um, Roy will help you with those.